0: Welcome to the Table Leadership Podcast, where everyone is invited to pull up a seat, and all leaders have a voice to contribute to the conversation. We're glad you could join us today. And now, your host, Sian Edgerton. Yes, yes, exactly. Very big gray area. So that's that's kind of what the focus is. Cool, great. Cool. Awesome. Um, Well, let's just start off by, first of all, let me just say thank you, obviously, for taking the time and for being here. Super honored and excited to have you on. And um, why don't you just real quick introduce yourself? And you and I met really recently, too. And so this is probably partially by way of introductions, just for my benefit. But um, just kind of let everybody know who you are, what you do, where you're from, whatever you feel Mm -hmm. like would be pertinent for them to just hear your heart.
1: Um, I was born in Oakland, California, and then I grew up in a town called Concord, which is just over the hill from Oakland. And now I live in Martinez, this is Martinez, California. Martinez apparently uh, is the birthplace of the martini, um, mm-hmm. right? And Joe DiMaggio. I don't know if Joe DiMaggio was born here, but he, he grew up here. But the whole martini thing, I ju- I tend like a lie. That's one of those. If the if it is a lie why would you make that up? And who cares? So I'm going to run with it. And there's a plaque in Martinez that actually says, no (laughs) way. Yes. It's a plaque on a rock. So they're like, no, we're serious. Um, And um, my wife and I were married August 1st, 99. So we're going on 21 years coming up this summer. I've got two littles. I'm a nine-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl. Asa is my oldest. And uh, Caitlin is uh, is my youngest. They are uh, the dude and the bird. They rarely call by their names, uh, at least by me. Um, and our context of the conversation, so um, currently I do a lot of coaching with artists and uh, pastor minister types. So most of most of my clients or relationships are people who are trying to create culture for the benefit of others. Mm-hmm. And almost everyone I'm working with is trying to figure out what that looks like 20 years from now and trying to make something that works um, not so much for them right now, but honestly thinking about like, what do we, what do we do for folks who aren't here yet? Um, and um, I'm, I'm not like a certified, I'm <laughs> not a certified coach. I didn't go to like coaching classes. I just spent the last 25 years making just a crap ton of mistakes in uh, art and uh, ministry and relationship. And so I get to pass along whatever bits of wisdom and pattern I've learned. Um, Planted a church in 1998 um, in downtown Concord, helped some other friends do similar things in different parts of the country in California. I made a truckload of music over the course of many years and written a lot. I'm working on a seventh, seventh book um, so I think depending on how you do your math seven books I do a lot of the stuff and so most of the stuff I'm trying to pass on to people is the um, the day-to-day wisdom mm-hmm. so uh, yeah that's I guess that's a pretty decent overview but I'm, I'm a dad I'm a resident in the East Sansco area I help people as best I can with not just the stuff I'm making but the stuff I've learned from making stuff.
0: That's awesome. And I love that that's the focus too. You know, it's really easy to use our gifts and talents and follow our passions and do the things, but to intentionally be sharing that and passing it on and to live so open handedly, I just, I love that. That's great. So props to you, man. Um, Okay, so my first official question, which is not really official, but it's the question that I ask everybody. It's my kind of just for fun icebreaker um, because I have two great loves in life. That's uh, food and leadership. So uh, depending on the day, one of those takes (laughs) precedence over the other. It just depends on the day. Um, but the first question that I always ask is if you and I were actually gathering leaders um, yeah. in real life around a table that wasn't virtual and we were just, you know, gathering them to pour in and invest and share all yeah. the wisdom and mistakes that you talked about, what would you be feeding us?
1: So if I was on my own, if it was just me and I couldn't get help, so I'll answer this two ways. If I, if I, was, on my, if I was on my own and I couldn't get help, um, I, would hope I would try to grill uh, vegetables.
0: Okay, <laughs> 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 oh,
1: awesome. It's they actually like, that's like my favorite thing. So just skewers and, you know, sliced, diced vegetables. I would just grill the hell out of a lot of vegetables. That, that would be the... Now, um, better case scenario is I would include some other people who are really strong in that area. So really specifically, excuse me, my wife and her friend Keiko are... Um, they are, I don't even know how to describe this. So they'll host, they're, they're, they'll get hired in to like host uh, and conduct like sushi parties. Okay. And so it's like, it's out of this, Keiko is out of this world great. And my wife is a phenomenal sushi chef too, Keiko. My wife is, is a great cook and great chef, but uh, Keiko's like completely next level. And one of her favorite things in the world to do is like, she loves to like put her in a room with like eight to 20 people and say like feed us something that is you know challenging and interesting but also delicious and that's like her world and so people who've never tried gyoza are like whoa gyoza or people who have had gyoza have never had gyoza this particular way and Keko's just like so my best case scenario is i call in a team of people who know what the hell they're doing yeah. and say, serve these people sushi and gyoza and do the whole thing so that would be that would probably be the way that would go
0: that's awesome. I love it. And I love what you're really laying out for us right there too. Like, you know, foundations of leadership 101 is oh my gosh, if you can't do the thing, then just bring in people to do oh, the thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because you don't have to be good at all the things all the time.
1: No, and I don't I don't enjoy the stuff I make <laughs> as much as I enjoy. Like isn't everybody like, what do you want to eat? I, something that someone else has made for me. Yes. Every something single that I'm not laboring over. So, and then there are people who are like, I would rather cook for you than you cook for yourself.
0: oh that's awesome I love it that's
1: that's Amy and Keiko
0: okay well considering the fact that we live in proximity to one another unlike most of my guests um, one of these days I get to be part of a gathering and taste Keiko's food oh
1: absolutely we'll have you over we like anytime we can because we throw a lot of parties here at the house anytime we can Keiko's very involved in those
0: bodies. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. Well, I look forward to it. I totally, so, you know, no shame, like invited myself over
1: for. And you are, you are, it's, it, is a, it is a broad cultural open invite.
0: Great. Open that's invite. awesome. All, All right. So now that we know what you bring to the table, as far as food wise, um, what is it that you feel like you bring to the leadership table in this season?
1: Um, In this particular season, uh, I've tried a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I've done, I've done a bunch of different stuff okay. and I've, uh, I've had, well, how do I do this? Yeah. Okay. I've tried a lot of stuff and I, which means like, I, I bring around, <laughs> I bring 25 years of trying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like there, there are some successes and some failures and I don't necessarily bring the successes and failures as such. What I bring is, uh, when I got started, can I tell a story? Is yeah. Okay? When I got started, uh, I had a friend who's still a friend, which is great. It's awesome to be able to say that. I had this friend. We're still friends. Uh, so cool. Uh, it doesn't always work out that way. So Frank Tate was a was and was a friend and a mentor, one of the most significant persons in my personal life and my professional life. Um, and uh, I was living in his house because I was on, I was on staff with an organization called Young Life. Mm-hmm. So I was making legitimately, I was making between like 250 and like 400 a month. And so I didn't I needed a place to stay and Frank was like, just stay in the house with me and meet a bunch of other single guys And I was there's a, a lot to the story, but uh, I was playing music. My plan was I was gonna do youth ministry stuff, work with kids, and then I was gonna teach to supplement my uh, youth men income. So that was the, that was the road. And I was writing songs just as a way to process all the chaos of being like this young adult who had decided on a career that was like highly emotionally laced. And I didn't know why I felt the way I felt most days. And so I was like, well, what would Morrissey do? And what Morrissey would do is he would write some really songs. So that's what I was doing. And Frank came to me at one point and was like, hey, if you thought about music as a career, there's a bunch of that story. I'll tell some other point, I'll make this as short as I can. Um, I took a little bit of a risk he took a bigger risk. I didn't know at the time. I took a little bit of a risk. My, most of my kids were graduating, so I would be starting club over at the school I was working with. So it wasn't I wasn't leaving kids in the dust. I was like, oh let's take a shot at this." And so we're halfway through making a, what ended up being like a first record, and I go with Frank to this <laughs> to this thing, this like music industry thing, and he puts me on stage in front of uh, like 200, 250 industry folks, like the people who are like music buyers and. Like radio executives, and the whole point of the thing is like record executives would say, you know, here is actually a great friend of mine who I just ran into again. Her name is Sarah Kelly. She's got Grammys, so she, like Sarah Kelly is there, and she, so her, you know, record label executives up, and she and she's gonna kill it. She's phenomenal, and he's like, this is Sarah Kelly. She's gonna perform. You're gonna love it. She's the best thing since sliced bread. And she's gonna rearrange your DNA. It's gonna be amazing. And uh, and that's everyone, right? So, so, so like, I'm my like fifth or sixth in the morning. And Frank gets up, and goes. So with me is Justin McRoberts, and uh, I'll be honest, he's not that great. <laughs> um, the leg- I'm, no joke, this is exactly what it is. He goes, I'll be honest with you, he's not that great. He's, he says, I'm honest, with you, I'll be honest with you, he's not that great right now. And the room is, I'm holding a guitar, standing behind him, and 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 the room kind of has this like, this is not a good salesman. And he says, but. I'm going to bet on two things. One, I'm going to bet that the majority of artists you see this morning probably won't be making music three to five years from now because it's really hard. But I think Justin will be making art 15 years from now, and I'm making a long-term investment because I think that music will be really good. Mm. I, like, I didn't hear that all the way at the time because I, <laughs> I was mostly hearing the echo of how much I suck in front of all these people. But what that did for me was it set this tone that – um, like, it's not like today doesn't matter, but, um, Frank set this tone for me that it was about who I was becoming as a person yeah. and as an artist, which rearranged the way I understood it, it re yeah, it, it kind of reoriented my metric for like, what the hell do you mean by success? Like it's, it's, it's not even just as all for tomorrow per se, but this notion of becoming like mm-hmm. it, it, it does matter. Like what's gonna what you look like, what the culture around you looks like 15, 20 years from now, if you if you stick with this thing. And maybe more so than anything else, that's kinda what I bring to the table. Like the set of urgencies. Um, or the yeah, the set of urgencies and the general sense of urgency in this cultural moment, I, I get up to a certain point. Like, I mean, I'm a white, straight white Christian male, so like I don't I don't live in the point in which You know, I don't wake up every day with the kinds of pressures on me and limitations on me that black women do. Yeah. Um, At the same time, um, one of the things I've learned from watching black leadership and is that like, hey, you're going to try and you're going to fail. And that's the thing you have to expect. And what you can't bank on is that your failure today is the end. And And you'll do some things and you'll have some victories. And don't go marching around like you won the whole damn thing. Because yeah. 15 years from now, we're still going to be up to this thing. So, maybe more so than anything, I try, I, like today's urgencies, they're not not urgent, but we're building and becoming as people and as a culture. And I, and I help, I, as best I can, I bring to the table this sense of like you're part of a much larger thing, even in your own life as well as culturally. So, yes, work your ass off, do your absolute best today. But don't buy into the idea that you've succeeded or you failed at any particular point along the journey, because there will be a tomorrow There will always be a next step.
0: Yeah, that's so good. So for the question that I have then, and this is what I'm thinking as you're talking, right? I'm thinking about the person who um, you talk about, oh, I've tried a lot of things, right? And there's so many of us who would say, well, I thought about a lot of things. Like I thought about trying a lot of things. And so you're kind of sharing this story of the the point that was turning for you, you know, where Frank said like, Hey, he sucks now, but I'm making a long-term investment. And the way that that just resonated in your life, um, what is it? And I know you kind of just said it a little bit. But if there was something for someone who's listening, who's like, wow, I want to live like that. I just want to be like, you know what? Screw yeah. the fear and there's going to be mistakes. And I'm just going to try these things. Two, two questions and you can address them however you want to. One okay. is what is the mantra that you would give them to get them past the point of thinking about a lot of things and just trying the things? You know, how do you really take that brave, bold, courageous step? And then the second, the follow-up, would be how do you still do that with wisdom because i'll be honest i've tried a lot of things that i really should not have tried because i just should not i just should not have we'll just we'll just leave it there um and and not you know not meaning that because i made mistakes or because because i failed but because I think there's a difference between being bold and brave and courageous and saying, you know what, I'm just going to try this. And I'm just going to put everything out there and I'm going to see where it lands, yeah. um, which I was kind of a lot of my story. And so mm-hmm. what does it look like for you to try, how do you take that brave, bold, courageous step? And then also what does it look like to do that, you know, with, with wisdom?
1: Um, so I, I think I'll work backwards and I think what it looks like to do uh, wisely um, I'm going to be just hyper practical. So um, I think uh, it takes particular disciplines. And so not just the idea of discipline, but it take, I think it takes particular disciplines. So one, um, having a place, first thing, having a place, an actual strategic place to write down and keep track of all your actual ideas. Mm-hmm. So. Evernote, notes, journal, whatever. Like if you have things in your head, you're like, I would like to try this. I think this might be useful. Like write it down, actually organize it so you can see the front you And then uh, the second discipline is the use your calendar. And I would say, and uh, I would say try trial, like do it all. Put it on the calendar. Like this yeah. is going to be a season. Like, hey so I want to do this thing. I want to gather people at my house to do, uh, uh, you know, we're going to watch 30 rock and talk about, you know, what it has to do with leadership in life. Like I had this random idea, like, okay, cool. So we're going to try that, put that on the calendar. And then you have these other, like put that on the calendar and actually like put that in a place where you, you know, you're going to do it. Cause part of what ends up happening and I'm going to, like I said, hyper-practical part of what ends up happening is we have these ideas. We don't execute for two reasons. One, we don't actually like, it, if it remains a thought, um, I don't actually have to work out the things about it that would, that might work or might not work. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I write it down, as soon as I actually put like an idea actually on paper or in, or in a place where I can look at it, I can, I like, sometimes we end up doing stupid shit. Cause it's like, well, you didn't really think all the way through this. Yeah. So like, I, I didn't put it down and, like map it out and be like, well, I want to gather folks at the house, blah, 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 et cetera. And then you're like, well, you have, you know, you live in an apartment, you have two chairs, so you can't do, it. you know what I'm saying? Like, so putting it, putting in a place, you get to actually work the idea out and then putting it on a calendar. Cause the second the calendar uh if as an adult like the calendar generally tends to tell me what i'm doing like like i don't i, I like I, I don't make it up as i go on per se i put it on the calendar and then the, I'm, I'm pointing at my calendar it's actually the word. my calendar sort of tells me that's what we're doing this season so put your ideas in a place and then actually commit to them by using the calendar hmm. and I, I my thing is my thinking is um like do it all, and yeah, it's probably true that some of it's not going to be a good move. Um, I never know, like I've never known going in, and the process of discernment and wisdom really, really only happens over the course of time. And I don't ever develop a sense of, I don't ever really develop a, like a keen sense of discernment and wisdom by thinking through everything. Mm-hmm. I develop a keen sense of discernment and wisdom by doing things mm. and then processing, like processing the things that I've done. So I think I have to put it in play. I think I have to live it and embody it. I have, it has to happen with my body. It has to happen in my actual space. And then I create time to think through and look through and process. Here's the last caveat. With other people, mm-hmm. the things that I've done. So there are the, there are the practices and disciplines. is put everything down, right? If it's an actual idea, put it somewhere where you can look at it and process it, put it on the calendar and just try it. Yeah. Even if you're like, I have no idea this might suck. Or if you think it's the greatest thing in the world, which is usually the stuff we don't try. And then, and then as you're processing and thinking, like have some people around you to work that out and be like, I felt like this worked really well. And other people are like, it really didn't. And, you know, because you were in charge the whole time, or you're like, God, this really sucked. And like, well, Yeah, but it was really cool to watch you fail. And I think everyone would come back and try it again, if that makes any sense.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it totally does. And that's good. And that, that I want that piece that you just said about, you know, you don't gain wisdom and discernment from thinking about things, but from doing things, that would be the thing that I would cling to because I tend to be super strategic. And that's just one of my gifts is long-term yeah. planning and thinking and strategizing. And it's fantastic. And it is a gift, but you know, our greatest gift overuse becomes our greatest weakness. And that is oftentimes the one thing that is my greatest hurdle to actually trying things. Is because- it
1: over-strategizing?
0: over strategizing. I've got to have 20 steps and I'm stressing about step 20 when I haven't even decided to just like take step one and see if yeah. I even want to take step two. Yeah. And so that's fantastic. And then I love what you said too about processing. Cause I think it's really easy for some of us, those who are triers to try things and either it works or it doesn't, but either way, we're just moving on to the next thing and trying it and not even thinking about, Oh wait, why did that not work? Why do I feel like that was a mistake or that failed? And maybe that would actually influence form the next thing that I try. And so that piece right there about process yeah. and community, I think is so huge. So in this whole life of trying lots of different things, um, I want to, I want to ask you two things. The first thing is what has it cost? Because there's, you know, when, when we try, when we do things, whether it's works out or it doesn't, you know, it always costs us on some level. What has it cost you? Cause I want those who are thinking about it who are like, yes, I'm going to write the things down and put them on my calendar. You know what? I'm going to try these things. You know, it's good for us to know like, Hey, let me count the cost first. What does it cost you? And why has it still been worth it?
1: So, um, one, it always costs more. Um, always it doesn't matter how much you think it's going to cost. It always costs more than you think you plan always every single time, mm-hmm. um, which isn't to say, don't count the cost. I'm just saying like, do your math and then, prepare to be wrong about you. <laughs> um, for me, <laughs> as opposed to answering for someone else, all of a sudden I'm 20 again. No, it's for me. <laughs> um, in my history, in um, personal creativity, art stuff, it costs, it predominantly costs ego. Mm. Um, like I just, the place I've died most to myself and my own self-evaluation has been in the process of making art and making it, well, making art. Um, and when I say art, part of what I mean, just so folks can come from art is anything we create, uh, that facilitates connection between people, anything. Um, so in the process of creating art, I guy mostly to myself, my ego, like my own, I've had to go through the process of, um, Yeah, like facing my own uh, arrogance and pride and, um, yeah, like that self-evaluation, like my my identity tied up into the stuff I make. Mm -hmm. The primary cost of making art has been ego. The the primary cost of leadership has been relationship. You're Mm -hmm. just going to lose friends. And not just because people are going to hate you, but because you're going to figure out that, one, there are a bunch of people in your life who really actually aren't life-giving, and they're not really friends. Um, like they have, there's a different category for those folks. And they're good folks, and you like having around. But like you just, you end up figuring out a few things. One, you're going to make decisions that people aren't going to be stoked on, um, and you're going to lose friends. Yeah. Um, two, you are going to figure out that some people actually aren't on your side. You're getting used. I mean, folks talk all the time, and it's not unfair to talk about the way leaders use people. Mm -hmm. We don't talk enough about the way uh, congregations and uh, employees and followers use leaders. Leaders get used on the regular. Part of what you find out over the course of the time in leadership is you're getting used by a whole lot of people you thought were friends. So you're going to lose those people as friends. Um, Jesus had 12 and among those 12, one of them stole them out for cash and everyone bailed on him when shit got hard. Um, Like, that's the model, my model. Um, and so if that's the case, and I want to lead tribally, culturally, I'm going to lose friends, either because I, those people get redefined as something other than friends or folks who will, will actually bail on me and betray me. So the primary cost of leadership is loss of relationship.
0: Mm. So both of those things, the cost of art being ego and death to self and identity and the cost of leadership just being relationship and people, those are both super heavy and super hard especially when you know we we want to think that the idea is no i'm just um, if i do it right and if i do it well then everything's just going to be pretty and, and good and easy and rainbows and you know we're all just going to get along and agree to disagree and, and it's just not the way that it works so with those two hard heavy costly things tell me why it's been worth it
1: um bec- well so for several reasons Um, working backwards. When I figure out who my actual friends are, that's like a goldmine. Mm. So I can only spend so much time with so many people. So I've got a really, 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 really short list of people in my life. I'm 46. I'm, you know, I'm more than halfway done with life and I don't have to spend a whole lot more time in my life trying to figure out who I want to be around when I just need to be around people. I'm done. I, I know who those people are. That's a freaking goldmine. Like, I didn't know that for a long time. So coming to that recognition of who my actual friends are and where I can be, where I'm actually, where there's like there's life for me in a relationship, totally worth it. Um, that's one. Two, um, the less it's become about me, in light of that, in light of not, in light of like having friends who are friends and then like leaning back into the work of leadership and culture-making, um, it's not about me anymore. And I can, and because it's not about me anymore, other folks can sense that. And so the stuff that I do, the places in which I lead is there's more benefit, there's more depth and richness for other folks. And I can see that. Um, And because, and because it's not about me, I get to actually just enjoy the fact that other people's lives are more enriched and deeper and broader and wiser because of some things that I've done or said, it's totally, totally worth it. Because I'm clear about who I am and who I belong to and the work I, and I'm clear about the effectiveness and the impact and the, I think I want to say goodness uh, of the work. I'm I'm clear, yeah, I'm clear about the goodness of the work that I'm I'm doing. Mm. Um, That's why it's worth it. Um, You figure out who you are, which is magic. You figure out who you want to be with, which is part of figuring out who you are. And then you figure out what you're worth, what your work is actually worth over the course of time. And those are the things you want to figure out in life, period. Yeah. So in a sense, you don't really have a choice. Right. This is just some shit that's gonna happen. I mean, it was like you don't get the you don't get to decide this. it's just it's the process you're just in. You can either do it intentionally or not. But like you don't get to not face that.
0: Right. That's good. So one of the things that you mentioned as you were answering that question and you said it a couple of times so far, you talked about culture making, mm-hmm. um, define, what do you mean by that? And, and what is the culture that you feel like you're kind of trying to create?
1: Um, so what am I, so this culture I'm trying to create, I'm trying to create really specifically, uh, re- really specifically right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not believe in evangelicalism and I am not here to support whiteness or white people. Uh, I'm certainly not trying to champion white evangelicalism as such. Um, but I am strategically positioned because of my history to build a culture in which people who are trapped in the system of white evangelicalism can bridge themselves or be bridged out of it. Okay. That's the front. That's, that's what I'm best at. Um, I'm trying to move people like me towards the kingdom of Jesus. And most of the people who are like, when by, when by the people who are like me culturally, ethnically, socioeconomically, white evangelicals. So I know who my people are. I know that the, the majority of people who pay attention to what I'm doing are either in evangelicalism and, and are predominantly white um, or other folks who were there and don't know where the hell they are supposed to be now. And that's a larger and growing group of people. But like, I don't, I don't have a whole lot to offer the progressive circles. Like they're far more qualified, invested, wise women and men doing that work. And I can, I can and should rather lift up their voices and what they're doing. Um, I knew who my tribe is. So I'm create. So by you know culture creating, I'm trying to create pathways, bridges, spaces, language for people who are like me to move closer to the kingdom of Jesus. Um, and culture is that. Like culture is in a, is in a hopefully and usually in some way intentionally created um, pathway or set of practices whereby or in which people are gathered and moved.
0: Mm-hmm so so the question that i have then because you said something in there that i think was really key you said you know who your people are people you know you're you're trying to move and create culture for the people who are like you and um that also in the other spaces for the people who are not like you you know there's someone better qualified to do it so what i don't want to hear people what i don't want people to hear you say is that you're not Concerned about the people who aren't like you, because I I know your heart. I mean, I know the work that you do, and the heart that you have for equality and equity, and um, social justice, and, and racial reconciliation, and all of these things. And I know. Um, just so many spaces in which you are super super affirming Mm -hmm. um and so tell me what you mean by because i love what you said i think it's really easy you know the whole like white savior complex where i've got a heart for something and so i'm gonna go in and i'm gonna be the one to rescue everyone when the reality is that it's actually the people who look like those that are being oppressed and marginalized? Who live there? Yeah. Who are actually best equipped to do that work? And my role is to lift them up and elevate their voices. So talk to me just a little bit about um, that approach and that mindset. And then how are you? How do we practically do that? Because I think a lot of us, um, you know, especially you started out by saying like, "Hey, I am a straight white Christian male." I think a lot of us really need to step back from the places that we feel like, gosh, I'm going into rescue. It doesn't mean that I'm disengaging completely. It means that I'm actually helping to position, elevate the people who need to be leading there. Talk to me about all of that.
1: Sure. So like if your kids are sick and you love them dearly, you don't love them more and wisely and better by deciding that as your kids get sicker, you are going to be the one who diagnoses and prescribes care. Mm -hmm. What you do is say there are qualified women and men who literally went to like 800 years of school to become doctors so that they can do this work because you specialize in things. So um, when someone, uh, great example. So as, as folks come, to me, in the last couple of days, uh, because of the thing I shared publicly a little while ago about race and religion, if folks want to ask you know, particular questions about their pathway forward as, as white people. Uh, I will point and say, "Hey, here's 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 wisdom I've got," um, but, I picked, but I'll tell you who I picked it up from is uh, you want to pay attention to Christina Cleveland and you want to pay attention to Ben McBride in these specific areas because these are the people that I've paid attention to. Christina and Ben deeply inform my life when it comes to race and religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Christina and this personal, you know, connection with the divine sense and Ben from the standpoint of like culture and kind of you know, broader culture and civil engagement with regards to what, is, what, is, how does, what does blackness have to do with following Jesus? What is, what is What does blackness have to do with connecting with God? I can tell you what I think about those things, but they can tell you what they know. Yeah. About this and so I'll point folks to Christina and to that. Similarly, was talking about, mm-hmm. you know, gender issues, like, I, like go, go talk to, go talk to Jen Hatmaker, go, go, go have a conversation, uh, with, uh, anyways, any number of people, I'm going to make a big fat list here because I don't know who you pay, pay attention, to, but like, if I'm going to love people well in, in specialized areas, I should specialists. And I have not, and I could not have specialized in blackness. I don't have the, I don't have the option of specializing in blackness. I don't have this, I don't have the option of specializing in queerness. I can point to people who do because that's where they live.
0: Yeah. And so I think the important thing that you're doing there, because oftentimes I think it can become really black and white. Um, And I know what I've heard from a lot of my Uh, either friends of color or LGBTQ friends or, you know, women who have been oppressed because of their gender who say, hey, we need the majority voice to speak up and to be vocal and to affirm us. Um, But I love kind of the blend that you're bringing, because I think it's really easy in our speaking up and our vocalizing to say, oh, okay, I'm going to carry the mantle of solving this and fixing this and being the savior of this issue. Right. And then it's also really easy when we hear, oh, wait, I'm not the one who's actually best equipped to do something. I'm not the specialist here. Well, then therefore I don't have, I don't bear any responsibility. And I think there's this yeah. balance of like, we do bear the burden, the majority culture, whether we're talking about sexuality or gender or race or whatever, yeah. we, we, the majority culture bear the burden of vocalizing, but then also directing to the specialist. And I love the way that it seems you've really found the the blend of of those two things.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm ultimately, if, if I'm being honest, like I'm doing what I've been asked. So, um, you know, Christina Cleveland, again, who, you know, she's been on the podcast, my podcast a couple of times. And she, one of the things she'll go after is like, she doesn't want to, she, and rightfully so, she really doesn't want to go um, directly and try to teach white crowds. Like it's mm-hmm. not a thing she wants to do. She Mm -hmm. wants white folks to do that. Yes. The thing is, is she also wants white folks to do that wisely and well, Mm -hmm. um, which has to do with like, you know, predominantly listening. So I'm, I'm playing again, she's, she is more invested uh, in, in, I think this is probably true. She is, she is more invested in what it looks like for white people and white culture to come to grips with what blackness is than I am. Like it, I could live my life and people around me could not really come to an understanding of, of, you know, blackness and what whiteness is. And it kind of wouldn't affect my life. Like okay, I'd be yeah. fine. Uh, but it affects her every day. So she's more invested. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, because I love her, um, I'm going to do as a way to love her. I'm going to do what she's asking me to do. And uh, I also want my white friends to love the world well because that's a better way to live. So it's not just like, hey, I need my white friends to like just get their crap together and serve black people better. I want my white friends to live well and like know the Lord and know the world and like be known. Mm-hmm. And so it's a way for me to love them as well.
0: So something in what you just said, um, you said to, you know, to live well and to live fully and to know the Lord i think oftentimes um majority culture and by that you know i mean middle class straight white christian culture um i think we live under the illusion of fullness and under the illusion that we have a full understanding of who Mm. jesus is and we have a full understanding of love yet we're also marginalizing and systemically silencing and oppressing so many voices and so and and so i think we we experience a fraction of who jesus is and a fraction of what love really is and a fraction of of living well but we're not experiencing fullness because there's so many spaces where we've said oh no yeah. that's not okay you're not okay you don't belong we're in and you're out talk to me about what we miss out on by not fully loving well our mm. brothers and sisters of color the women in our communities the mm. folk in our communities
1: um it, i think it gets hyper specific uh, uh so what I can say, and I'm sorry, I still have this cold. I think to like, so I've got things happening. No, you're good. Um, I think I think it gets really. Uh, this is going to be one of those terrible podcast answers. It's like it really depends on the social you um, but it's something along those lines. So um, what I what, what I can say broadly about my own path uh, is that my my life is far more complex and difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, because I have an emotional attachment to to LGBTQ friends mm-hmm. weirder and harder and in that I discovered that like I like the work um, and like I'm designed to work and this, some of this comes around to and this is probably I don't know if you'll start with this or not but like some of this really does come around to a theology of work mm-hmm. that um what we understand about fullness usually comes from this weird sort of latent theological conclusion sociological conclusion that we come that we that, uh, that uh, leisure is the is like the, the goal mm-hmm. that uh, that, we, that somehow our f- that fullness of life has to do with leisure and I think that's horseshit. I think the fullness of life looks more like uh, a, a solid um Solid, um, a really healthy relationship between work and rest. Mm-hmm. And the work of life gets more complex and more difficult um, if I'm emotionally, socially, financially, spiritually uh, in league with and locked arms with people who will not like me. So um, I think we miss out on the work more so than anything else. It's more work to be a Black woman. In America than it will ever be. To... Yeah. And I miss out on the depth and joy of that work. And that's not to minimize that. It's like, but if you like, I mean, which I'm, I know you do, like there's a joy, um, in the, in the work and the, yeah, there's a joy in the work and the struggle, uh, it, you know, in, in black circles that like white culture just misses out on. Like there are victories that get to be celebrated if you're, if you are in the black struggle that like, uh, like if you're not tied, like i will never fully experience that, but like, I'd love to get a piece of that if there's any way for me to get in the door. So mm-hmm. we miss on that. Like the victories, my victories are my victories in my own personal space. And that's great. But the victories we get to share with other people are like, are part of how our lives are enriched. And if we're not tied up with people who are not like us, our lives are, yeah, our lives and our joys are depleted, or at least um, we miss out on the joy of the work. And uh, yeah, we miss some of the joy of the work. I think that's probably what I'm trying to say.
0: Yes, that was so good. I'm, you know, I'm sitting here the whole time just trying to like, you know, be quiet, but I, I really just want to just scream like, yes, oh my gosh, like Justin gets it, Justin gets it. That's fantastic, and I think what you said is that's huge. The piece about we miss out on the joy of the work and the victory and the celebration when we get to lock arms with other people, which is not easy work and it's obviously you know not easy to do you've talked about death to self and ego and you know losing relationships and and being you know linking arms with brothers and sisters who are very very different from us in so many ways and yet that's where the fullness comes from Um, and so and and obviously I'm sure that comes with um, a lot of grief and a lot of heartbreak and a lot of ridicule and a lot of rejection from those who don't see eye to eye with you Mm -hmm. so the the last thing just kind of practically that I would ask you to speak to is what is it that you have come to know what do you know about Jesus what is kind of the solid foundation that allows you to continue to wake up every day and say this is really hard work this requires sacrifice this is exhausting sometimes it's really frustrating um, But I know that this is right and I know that this is good work so what and I know you talked about that identity piece, like coming to know who you are. And I think at the heart of that is like really knowing who Jesus is. And so, what what is it that you know that allows you to do this every day that you can share with us?
1: Um, I think about the moment. Um, I think about the, the the moment. Here we come to like, as we moving through Went, There's this moment post resurrection where He walks. Uh, through a wall apparently into mm-hmm. this room where people are and one of his friends has had not been super sure that like these stories he was hearing were real and so he offers him his hand on his side and says touch the scars on my wrist and my side
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's the point of which so, and that's and then Thomas is the person of, you know doubting Thomas. Um and then Thomas touches the touches the scars And then it's like, oh, you are real. That part of who Jesus is, that like part of what makes him real is his woundedness. Like part of what makes Jesus real is that he was dead, like actually dead, and that there are actual scars. I love that mission of life. Like, And I I see it in him, like in this moment of, like, you know, if there's ever been a victory, like the victory over death. He's like... And evidence of who he is in his position of victory and power is that he's scarred. Shit, like yeah, please. Like it gives context to when we talk about you know earlier talking about like what you know what it costs you to to live to live the life. Like it gives con. Like it's not just worth it because someday I won't. Like someday, like I won't carry these wounds with me, or someday like it'll all be worth it because this all these scars will add up to something. And they said, No, like there's context for these. Like th- this is this becomes part of who I am, part of my glorified existence of the scars I'm carrying from the shit I go through doing the stuff I'm doing. Like, is there a deeper, richer for me, is there a d- deeper, richer theological, psychological, like landing place? No that's the one for me.
0: Mm, that's awesome. I don't think I have really heard. I'm trying to think and no, I can't think of a time that I've really heard someone talk in that way about carrying scars and wounds and the scars with and... all the cussing. <laughs> I love it. You know, that t-shirt, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. Yeah, yeah I love it. No, it's great. But no, to hear someone talk about and just contextualize and 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 really bring a theology to, to what Jesus still carried in his resurrected glorified body and that that was still okay and that the evidence of that was actually what brought people to say oh yeah th- this is legit. Yeah.
1: Um
0: and, and the like, way who's gonna be-
1: I could, honestly who's gonna believe it yeah if it's not that way. Like on the real. Mm-hmm. Like just I mean it, it's the it's what it's the difference between between like a Judeo-Christian story about it about a man named Jesus and like a Greek legend like he's in the Greek legend he comes back and he's neither male nor female and he's this weird disembodied thing and there are no scars and he's levitating and glowing Mm -hmm. (laughs) but he's but that's the thing that makes it real I love that
0: yeah yeah My Jesus scars, that's really good. Well, um, I'm gonna be chewing on a lot for a long time, but you bring so much wisdom and I appreciate it. And I just wanna say on behalf of everybody, thank you. Um, First of all, just thank you for being someone who has tried things and for living the life that you've lived. And more importantly, to live open-handed and being willing to to share that in all of the realness of it is just super impactful. And so I just wanna say thank you so much for being here.
1: My pleasure, thanks for having me on.
0: listening to the table leadership podcast be sure to check out the show notes for links to the resources that were discussed at the table today and to connect with today's guest remember to subscribe to the table podcast and follow along on social media at the table leadership visit the table to learn more about current courses and coaching opportunities and finally you can connect with me your host at cion or on social media at c I look forward to the next time that you pull up a seat at the table.